On today's episode, mandatory union fees and a special on the Jewish state. This is Standing Up War History. Ask not what your country can do for you. With your host, Issa Sheik. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. At this defining moment, change has come to America. When you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. An enormous, spirited crowd showed up at the Supreme Court today for a potentially landmark case that could impact millions of public sector employees across the country. At issue, whether those government employees who object to a union's political activities can still be forced to pay fees to that union. Labor bosses, Democrats, and progressive activists raged against Illinois government worker Mark Janis earlier this year as the Supreme Court considered his petition to end mandatory union fees in the public sector. This case is not about impinging on anybody's First Amendment rights. The law already protects people's First Amendment rights. This is a case where there are a small group of very well-funded right-wing extremists that want to eliminate unions throughout this country. But their politically charged fury can only be seen as objectively strengthening his case. During February 26th oral arguments in Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Council 31, William Messenger, the National Right to Work Foundation attorney representing Janus, asserted that Illinois law and the state union contract violate Janus's First Amendment rights by making him pay AFSCME, or AFSCME, in order to keep his job, because the union uses his money to engage in political speech in public, at grievance proceedings, and through contract negotiations. Outside the courtroom, Janice and his supporters have stuck to the same basic message. It's unconstitutional to compel public employees to fund a union's political speech as a condition of employment. And since everything public sector's unions do affects public workers, public spending, and public services, all of their spending is political. Here's Janice. And that's the crux of the whole argument here, is, is the fact that I don't have that freedom. Uh, it is mandated. Uh, some people would say it's coerced. And the fact that, you know, my right to say yes is just as important as my right to say no. And I, I never got that opportunity. Even with help from the court's liberal justices, AFSCME lawyer David Frederick was not making much of a counter-argument, admitting that a win for Janice would reduce the union's political power conceding that mandatory fees should be restricted to fewer uses and warning that a ban on mandatory fees may, quote, raise an untold specter of labor unrest throughout the country, end quote. Judging from the heated rhetoric that public sector union bosses have directed at Janus since the Supreme Court agreed to consider his case, they don't expect to convince Justice Neil Gorsuch, the only justice who was not on the court, when a similar case resulted in a 4-4 tie in 2016. Instead, union officials seem to be building a narrative meant to frighten workers into sticking with them. This is AFSCME President Lee Saunders speaking Saturday at a rally here in New York City. They are not making a legal argument in front of the Supreme Court. They're making a political attack on all of you. That's what this is about. It's a political attack. They don't care about the First Amendment. They all care about making more money and having more wealth at the expense of all of you. And they're not just going after unions. 
They're coming for everyone who threatens their power, who threatens their privilege. All of us who want to unrig that economy so it's fair, they're coming after you. Quote, in the face of ruthless, dishonest attacks against their freedom to come together in strong unions, working people are drawing the line. Saunders said in a press release, we stand united in fighting a rigged system that rewards the super wealthy at everyone else's expense. AFSCME paid Saunders a total of $356,224 in 2016, according to the union's latest annual disclosure available to the U.S. Department of Labor. Saunders is compensated at the expense of Janus and other public employees from whose paychecks AFSCME deducts mandatory fair share fees. It's worth noting that a Supreme Court ruling in favor of Janus would not restrict any worker's ability to join, pay, or otherwise participate in a labor union. Aside from ending the union's practice of taking forced fees from non-members, a victory for Janus wouldn't change the contract items public employee unions can collectively bargain for, nor would it restrict a single union organizing, negotiating, or, or protesting tactic. You'd never know any of this from listening to Saunders or the presidents of the nation's other giant public sector unions. Quote, this case isn't about Mark Janus. It's a ruse funded by the Kochs, the Bradleys, the DeVosses, and other anti-union oligarchs to deny working folks the opportunity for a better life, said American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten, whose 2017 pay from the teachers' union totaled 492563 almost 10 times what average teachers earn themselves. The Janus case is nothing but a bald attempt by rich CEOs to use the highest court in the land to cut down our unions. Richard Trumka, who has paid $315,368 as president of the AFL-CIO group last year, said at a recent rally in Philadelphia, AFSCME and AFT are two of the AFL-CIO's largest member unions. The corporate special interests behind this case are dead set on eliminating the rights and freedoms of working people to organize, to negotiate collectively, and to have any voice to, in working to better their lives, National Education Association President Lily Escalin Garcia said. This is a blatant slap in the face of educators, nurses, firefighters, police officers, and all public servants who make our community strong and safe, she continued. Taking hundreds of thousands of dollars per year in mandatory fees from teachers in nearly two dozen states enabled NEA to pay Escalson Garcia $348,732 last year and $512,504 the year before that. Quote, the anti-worker extremists behind this case want to divide working people, make it harder to pool our resources, and limit our collective power. Service Employees International Union President Mary Kay Henry said in September when the Supreme Court announced it would hear the Janus case. Sweeping condemnations of a rigged system, rich CEOs, anti-union oligarchs, corporate special interests, and anti-worker extremists undermine the distinctions union lawyers try to make between political and apolitical spending when defending mandatory fees in court. It's clear that union leaders believe their activism is inextricably linked to their ability to coerce fees from non-members. While Janice argues that mandatory public sector union fees are spent on political activism that dissenting workers shouldn't be forced to support as a condition of employment, Saunders, Trumpka, Weingarten, Eskelson, Garcia, 
and Henry imply that dissenting workers should be forced to pay unions because of their activism. Democrats and left-wing activist groups, beneficiaries of more than $1 billion in union spending from 2010 to 2016, are similarly energetic in their defense of mandatory public sector union fees, often repeating the same language the unions use to avoid discussing mandatory fees directly. Quote, in Janus versus AFSME, we are witnessing the culmination of a billionaire's anti-worker agenda, wrote Progressive Representative Keith Ellison, a Minnesota Democrat who was endorsed by AFSME, AFT, NEA, and several other powerful labor unions in the 2017 race for the chairmanship of the Democratic National Committee. The case before the Supreme Court on Monday threatens the freedom of millions of Americans working in the public sector to bargain for decent pay, better benefits, and a voice in their workplace. Neera Tandon, president of the union-funded Center of American Progress, wrote at USA Today. The right intends to use Janus to gut public employee unions, weakening what is the strongest constituency in organized labor. This, in turn, will greatly diminish labor's strength as a progressive force, wrote a contributor at AFSCME-sponsored online magazine, Working in These Times. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts called the Janus case the latest case in a years-long assault by powerful right-wing billionaires against workers. And closer to home, Senator Kamala Harris wrote on Twitter, This case is an attack on workers' rights backed by wealthy corporations. With Messenger's oral arguments and all of the exhibits filed on his behalf, Mark Janus may not have needed anything further to prevail when the Supreme Court issues its decision in his case this spring. But if a worker arguing that AFSCME is an inherently political organization that he shouldn't be forced to pay wanted to show why he felt that way, he couldn't have asked for much better than the behavior of the union and its left-wing allies recently. Should Gorsuch vote with the four justices who sided against mandatory public sector union fees in 2016, AFSCME, AFT, NEA, and SEIU will still be able to engage in outspoken progressive activism, but they'll have to do so without taking money from the teachers and other public employees who disagree with their agenda. Recently, I was walking in the hall of the mosque before the night prayers when I saw a stack of newspapers. Walking over to the stack, I read the headline. Jews Against Zionism, it read. It proceeded to tell me how some Jews in traditional attire set up a table at a famous and very big Muslim conference. They wore scarves with the Palestinian flag. The story included quotes that went something like, We don't like our symbols being abused to justify the state of Israel. It was a front-page story using some Jewish voices to say that Israel does not have the right to exist. Being a Muslim, it's not hard to come upon people saying things in this manner. Attending a dinner where the host claims that Jews created fundamentalist groups within Islam to cause divisions. Being told matter-of-factly that the apocalypse is coming because Jews are drilling under the Kaaba, the Islamic holy house, to wreck its foundations. That's architecturally incorrect, on top of everything else. For some reason, many of these claims aren't in the I hate filthy Jews form, although those definitely exist. Rather, there are sad laments that these people would do such things. And it isn't just limited to private citizen Muslims. 
A sitting D.C. city councilman named Trayon White recently said that the Rothschilds, a family of Jewish bankers, were responsible for the storms battering the Northeast. He's black, as is Minister Louis Farrakhan, the leader of the Nation of Islam, who has ties to the Women's March and Scientology. Farrakhan has said, The Jews don't like Farrakhan, so they call me Hitler. Well, that's a good name. Hitler was a very good man. There's also Paul Nealon, a right-wing challenger to Paul Ryan. Nealon tweeted, Poop, incest, and pedophilia. Why are those common themes repeated so often with Jews? All of these anti-Semitic things are virtually harmless in a material sense. They're just words. But it isn't always just words. The satanic Jews that control everything and mostly everybody, if they are your enemy, then you must must be somebody. 70 years ago, Zionists proclaimed the state of Israel from the Tel Aviv Museum of Art, a white, modern-designed two-story building. Above it flew the Star of David. Despite opposition of the Jewish state's establishment at the time from the United States, President Truman recognized it. The Zionists said, quote, We offer peace and amity to all neighboring states and their peoples and invite them to cooperate with the independent Jewish nation for the common good of all. The state of Israel is ready to contribute its full share to the peaceful progress and reconstruction of the Middle East. The new state would uphold the, quote, social and political equality of all its citizens without distinction of race, creed, or sex and, quote, will guarantee full freedom of conscience, worship, education, and culture. It was a celebratory event, this from the New York Times. There was great cheering and drinking of toasts in the blacked-out city when word was received that the United States had recognized the provincial government. The story continues, they even ran into the blackness of the streets shouting, cheering, and toasting the United States of America. Which brings me to our issue. Israel has always had enemies who oppose and deny its existence. Hamas, an acronym for Harakat al-Muqawwama al-Islamiyya, or Islamic Resistance Movement, is chief among those today. Founded during the First Intifada in 1987, they later emerged at the forefront of armed resistance to Israel. The United States and the European Union consider Hamas a terrorist organization. Its rival party, Fatah, which dominates the Palestine Liberation Organization, PLO, has renounced violence. More on them later. The support Hamas garners among Palestinians largely owes to the foil it placed to Fatah which many see as having grown corrupted by power while delivering little through its peaceful cooperation and negotiation with Israel. Hamas candidates won Palestinian elections in 2006, but their government was dismissed in 2007, resulting in the political bifurcation of the West Bank and Gaza. While Fatah reasserted its authority in the West Bank, 
Hamas has exercised de facto rule over the Gaza Strip in the years since. One of my teachers told me that Hamas is like a charity. And although it is true that Hamas has done some charity work, that work is eclipsed by the work they have done to harm not only Israelis, whose children they have literally murdered en masse, but Palestinians as well. This set fire to the Kerem Shalom border crossing, through which Palestinians received medicine, fuel, and other humanitarian essentials. In 1970, Israel set up an industrial zone along the border with Gaza to promote economic cooperation and provide Palestinians with jobs. It was shut down in 2004 amid multiple terrorist attacks. And here's the manifestation of our issue. In 2014, Israel discovered Hamas had built 32 tunnels under the border to kidnap or kill Israelis. That is scary. Israelis are killed and abducted due to where they live by people outside of their country. And just as a note to those who claim Hamas is a charity, the average tunnel required enough to build 86 homes, 7 mosques, 6 schools, or 19 medical clinics. The estimated cost of a tunnel? $90 million. Then there are the repeated instances of clashes between Israeli soldiers and Palestinian protesters. As I've mentioned before, the word protesters is in quotation marks. A protest is a collective action or gesture meant to bring pressure on a government or corporate entity. The Hamas-backed protests are meant to bring pressure on Israel, sure, but they're intended mainly to kill and maim both Israelis and the Palestinian protesters themselves. The picture of Palestinians dying at the hand of Israeli soldiers is Hamas's propaganda dream and indeed their goal. In the recent outbreak of demonstrations after President Donald Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and moved the American embassy there, Hamas kept urging Palestinians to move toward the fence, having been amply forewarned by Israel. The organizers encouraged women to lead the charges on the fence because, quote, Israeli soldiers might be less likely to fire on women. Children as young as seven were dispatched. And according to Hamas itself, in the recent demonstrations, Hamas fighters accounted for 50 of the 62 protesters killed. All of these facts get little to no attention. What in reality is an arm pushed on the borders of a sovereign nation is portrayed as an evil government making war on the innocent. And might I add that there was only rioting in Hamas-controlled Gaza, none in the Fatah-controlled West Bank or the Arab neighborhoods of Jerusalem. There are a large number of Zionists who are engaged with Nazi uh, Germany. Zionism, rather than being defeating anti-Semitism, is actually accepted anti-Semitism as the norm. Proponents of peace deals don't want to deal with Hamas. They want to deal instead with the Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas. Here's some history. In 1964, the Palestine Liberation Organization, PLO, was created at an Arab League summit in Cairo. It was an umbrella group for Palestinian organizations seeking for destruction of the Jewish state. The PLO fanned the flames from the 1967 Six-Day War. 
Rather than destroy Israel in that war, the Palestinians lost territory. Documents showed that the Palestinian guerrillas were sponsored and trained by the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, Hungary, Soviet-aligned Pakistan, and the Arab states. During the Bush administration, President H.W. Bush and Secretary of State James Baker leaked that they were open to meetings with Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO. This legitimized Arafat as the Palestinian Authority, which in turn led to this scene described by Seth Mandel in Commentary Magazine. Yasser Arafat and Bill Clinton stood in the map room of the White House on September 13, 1993, making awkward conversation. Two days earlier, Clinton had Arafat's Palestine Liberation Organization removed from the State Department's list of terrorist groups. The MAPRO meeting came after the Palestinian leader's famous handshake outside the White House with Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, which inaugurated the Oslo era. The Accords created the Palestinian Authority to serve as a sort of caretaker government tasked with making peace with Israel and building the institutions of a state led by Arafat. Just like that, one of the most consequential terrorists of his generation became the equivalent of a head of state before the state even existed. Those are the roots of the Palestinian Authority, whose role was to serve as a sort of caretaker government tasked with making peace with Israel and building the institutions of a state. But Yasser Arafat was always enamored with violent tactics, even after his group's ascendancy from terrorist organization to state, Arafat maintained violence. In times when it was beneficial to him, he managed to keep fingerprints off of bombings. But Bill Clinton grew the man's power in an extraordinary fashion. Arafat was the most invited foreign leader to the White House in the Clinton years. The fact is that President Clinton won an Israel-Syria peace deal, and he used Arafat for that. And the Palestinian Authority had tons of problems that persisted after statehood. They can be summed up in these three large issues. First, a lack of accountability enabled by Israel and the United States. Arafat exploited this. He never built his state, in part because nobody was willing to make him. Second, Arafat's role was unclear. Was he the chairman of the PLO, the president of the PA, or the leader of Fatah? Third, Arafat led the PA just like he did the PLO, with violence, secrecy, and authoritarianism. Mahmoud Abbas is Arafat's successor. Although Mr. Abbas has been less smitten with thuggish tactics, and he has deployed Palestinian forces to help Israelis maintain security in the West Bank, he has not been someone you can describe as a great person. Abbas has somewhat unintentionally ceded power to Hamas after Israel pulled out of Gaza and parts of the West Bank. And Mr. Abbas has not been free of the toxic anti-Semitism that is pervasive in this discussion. In the 1980s, he wrote a dissertation that questioned the Holocaust death toll. He recently claimed that the Holocaust occurred because of the victim's financial activities, rather than their Jewish identity. He hugged a terrorist who was released from jail. In addition, Mr. Abbas has presided over, and caused, deteriorations in Palestinian institutions. He has refused to call elections, leaving an 82-year-old in charge of a country without fresh faces in leadership. The Palestinian Authority survived the death of Yasser Arafat. There's serious doubt that it will survive the death of Mahmoud Abbas.
Palestinians are not the only people who want Israel gone. Iran has long targeted Israel. When Vice President Joe Biden visited Israel, the theocracy tested missiles marked with Israel must be wiped out in Hebrew. Mind you, this was after the Iran nuclear deal was implemented. Speaking of the Iran deal, it was one of two things that President Barack Obama did that backfired on the Palestinian Authority. One was, as I mentioned, the Iran nuclear deal, which gave tacit support to Tehran's expansionism in the Middle East, scaring Sunni regional powers like Saudi Arabia and Egypt into a strategic alignment with Israel. Second, Obama helped orchestrate the passage of a UN Security Council resolution that deemed East Jerusalem, home to Judaism's holy sites, occupied Palestinian territory. It seems like a gift to Mahmoud Abbas. It was an attempt to tie the hands of President-elect Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump doesn't like his hands tied. In the first year of his presidency, he publicly declared Jerusalem the capital of Israel. The Arab states have also long opposed the Jewish country. Israel has virtually been in a war every decade of its existence. It started exactly zero of those wars. Besides invading Israel, Arab states have backed Hamas and other groups. Many countries still don't recognize it and don't accept Israeli passports. Following the founding of Israel, Arab countries pushed out the Jews within their borders. Those Jews now serve as regular members of Israeli society. But it's important to notice that things have been changing. The crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, has shockingly enough claimed that Israel has a right to exist. Even more shocking is another admission from the Saudi reformer. He has started spreading responsibility for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. MBS, as he's referred to in foreign policy circles, faulted Palestinian leaders for complaining and for repeatedly rejecting Israeli peace offers. Israel is, and always has been, under attack. They are not a repressive society over Muslims, as many claim. To those people who do try to say that, I say, look at the Chinese treatment of Uyghurs, the Burmese treatment of the Rohingya, the Iranian treatment of Iranians. Israel is not illegitimate, as many try to claim. Their founders crossed every T, dotted every I, and jumped through every hoop to make their state legal. Given these facts, why is it that the UN, the organization that approved Israel before its founding, questions only Israel's existence? On the other hand, states like China are given large roles in the UN. Israel is the only state scrutinized at this level. Israel is the only Jewish state. There is no doubt that anti-Semitism is a factor in this occurrence. Well then, what about groups such as Jewish Voice for Peace? They're terrorist sympathizers. That's a crazy accusation, but when you look at it, it's not so crazy. Jewish Voice for Peace featured Rasmia O'Day as a speaker. She murdered innocent Israelis in 1969. She's a convicted terrorist found guilty of immigration fraud. The Boycott, Divest, and Sanction movement literally refers to a struggle lasting almost 70 years. This was a few years ago. So they're not 
critics of Israel's specific policies. They're critics of Israel's right to exist. So what does Israel do under these attacks? It defends itself, and any other country in the world would. But when it does, the world's elite rage at it. They criticize it endlessly. When armed protesters rush its borders, when Hamas lobs firebombs to burn its fields, when the Palestinians kill buses of school kids, Israel attempts to defend itself. The border wall is a necessity. Yet people write essays decrying that wall. Israel is a democratic society home to Muslims, Christians, and Jews. If any of us lived in the Middle East, we would choose Israel. And it is because that Israel has and continues to act on the problem, implementing solutions. That's all for this week. Just a reminder that the opinions expressed here are mine and not